Welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast, a co-production of HB Litigation, Critical Legal Content, Law Street Media, and Fastcase. I'm your host, Tom Hagee. Today we're going to talk about international litigation, and we're going to focus in particular on discovery. This is pretty important to businesses that operate across multiple countries and continents, maybe one day planets. Various legal matters arise in the realm of international litigation, including intellectual property disputes, business contract and lease disputes, immigration and labor issues, data security and privacy concerns, as well as trade practices, and more, because there's always more, and things are changing. That's a broad statement, if ever there was one. A recent poll conducted by the World Economic Forum revealed that 100% of participants in this survey, uh, that's all of them, if I'm not mistaken, they all anticipate changes in the structure of the global supply chains within the next three years. These changes include supply chain restructuring along geopolitical fault lines, supplier diversification, uh, there's going to be a greater emphasis on environmental sustainability and the adoption of artificial intelligence to optimize supply chains. At the same time, the International Monetary Fund has observed a phenomenon termed slobalization. Who knew the IMF was so jokey, characterized by a deceleration in the pace of trade reform and waning political support for open trade, particularly due to escalating geopolitical tensions? I haven't heard about that. The Harvard Business Review notes that globalization has always been an uneven process with cross-country differences and international conflicts hindering the free flow of goods and services. They said only about 20%. I don't know. It seems like a lot, but I'm not an economist. About 20% of global economic output ends up in a country outside the one in which it was produced. There you go. Fun fact. Complicating matters further is the ongoing tension between the United States and China. You read about it. This is uh, leading some companies, or many companies, to explore alternative nations uh, such as Mexico for their business operations. So we've got a shifting, interconnected global landscape. So when shift happens, as you all know, conflicts are bound to arise. Since commerce knows no borders, neither does business litigation. International disputes involve numerous challenges, particularly when it comes to complex litigation and the intricacies of discovery. Imagine employees, documents, and witnesses scattered across locations from Chicago to Shanghai to Sumatra. These complexities demand specialized tools to navigate the various and varying rules and norms where playing fields are anything close to level. Litigators must be well-versed in the laws they can rely on, understand their differences across jurisdictions, and be aware of common discovery traps. Those are things you'd want to avoid. In this episode, we speak with Benjamin Daniels, a partner at Robinson Cole, who will explore uh, essential tools for navigating the complexities uh, of cross-border discovery. Ben brings to this episode his expertise in, in, in advising financial institutions and global companies on litigation and dispute resolution. He's a member of Robinson Cole's business litigation group. There he provides strategic advocacy and litigation enforcement actions investigations, crisis management, and white-collar defense matters. Ben received his J.D., summa cum laude, Order of the Quaff, Law Review, from Washington University in St. Louis School of Law. Go Bears! 
He earned a Master's of Education degree with distinction from Mercy College, Go Mavericks, and a BA with honors in History and Anthropology from the University of Michigan. (laughs) And a BA with honors in History and Anthropology from the University of Michigan, Go Wolverines. I guess I'm not able to say it because, you know, I grew up in Ohio. Not that I even follow sports, but okay, there it is. Now, here is my interview with Robinson Coles, Ben Daniels. I hope you enjoy it. Ben Daniels, thank you very much for doing this today. Thanks, Tom. It's an honor to be on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Let's set the table for our listeners. Talk about how companies increasingly doing business overseas or having operations overseas in multiple countries and continents. How does that affect litigation generally? And then talk about discovery in particular. Thanks, Tom. So what we're seeing is an increase in cross-border disputes where you have a litigation in one country, but the evidence is spread across many countries. Like a great example of this is at a complex supply chain, kind of like you have for the Airbus A320. So if you look at the Airbus example, their wings are made all over the place. The raw material comes from mills in Europe and North America. It's shipped to component manufacturers in Austria, France, Germany, Italy, South Korea, UK, all over the world. Those components are then shipped once they're built to England for assembly of the wing assembly. It's then flown to Germany, put on a boat to Mobile, Alabama, where it's combined with components from other components from Europe. So as you can imagine, if there's any dispute about those wing assemblies, you're going to be looking at evidence all over the world, all over Europe, all over Asia, anywhere you can imagine, you're going to have evidence that you need to collect. And so for discovery, it makes bringing a litigation very difficult on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. It sounds like as if it's not complicated enough. Right. (laughs) Um, So what specific challenges uh, might we highlight for listeners? What we really would like to highlight is both the difficulty of collecting evidence if you're litigating in a foreign country and if you're litigating in the United States. So collecting that evidence, using it, and you know, going forward with it. And really one of the biggest problems is if you're litigating in a foreign country, there's a lot of evidentiary restrictions where you can't gather evidence and you're just supposed to go to court with the evidence that you already have in your possession. And that makes it very difficult to build a case. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about how you can use U.S. discovery and a a specific statute, 1782, in order to collect evidence for that foreign proceeding. Okay, let's jump into that. So tell us about what the the law is and what are the key elements and what's its intended purpose? Yeah, so Section 1782 is a statute that Congress passed to let an interested person get discovery from anyone found in the United States for use in a proceeding in a foreign tribunal. Now there's a lot of buzzwords there, but the statute's far reaching. And the purpose is to let people that are litigating in a foreign country get access to evidence that's in the United States. And the idea that Congress had, and as you can imagine, not every idea is great, but Congress thought that this would you know, inspire US discovery across the entire world. And obviously it has not. And that's become kind of a bone of contention among litigants in the 1782 space because we're giving access to evidence that's found in the United States to foreign litigants, but not getting any reciprocity from the other countries. But the statute has is a lot of different components. Um, First of all, you have to be an interested person. And that sounds like 
an interested person in a foreign proceeding sounds like it might be a complicated idea, but it really isn't. And it's very, very broad. You don't have to be a party to a litigation, but you can just be somebody that's contemplating a litigation or somebody that's interested in a litigation. For example, one company went to the European Commission about anti-competitive behavior, and they were considered an interested person for the purposes of 1782. And they got discovery about one of their competitors in the United States under the statute. So it's really a broad statute that almost anyone can use. And I alluded to this earlier, but you know, it doesn't have to be a court case. It can even be a contemplated proceeding. And we actually run into that in, in a case that I litigated in which somebody said they were thinking about suing my client in Japan, and therefore they could get discovery in the United States. And the court granted that. The court allowed them to get wide-ranging discovery in the United States just because they were thinking about filing a lawsuit in Japan. Wait, 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 wait. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it just seems like, not that I feel bad for America, but I do. No, but it's, <laughs> it just seems like the United States, U.S. litigants and companies are kind of getting a raw deal that you said the other, other countries don't always, there's not always reciprocity. So I'm, I'm trying to understand why that is. I think if I thought about it for a second, I'd probably figure it out. But why, why do you think it's not, we aren't getting reciprocity? And do you see foreign companies abusing what you just said? I want to get some information on this company. Um, so rather than pay for competitive intelligence, I'll just tell them I'm going to sue them. The reason we're not getting reciprocity is just the different legal traditions in Europe and the United States, like the common law countries versus the you know code-based countries like France, Germany etc. So the reason that we're not seeing reciprocity from other countries is the differences in legal traditions. We're in a common law country and other countries are in a code-based system. And they've evolved where we have a situation where we've given broad discovery historically in England and the United States to litigants. Whereas code-based countries such as France and Germany have a very limited view of what discovery is available. Generally, in those code-based countries, like in Europe, you have people that you're supposed to go to court with the evidence you already have in hand. And you present evidence, and it's kind of an evolving situation where you get to present your evidence that you have, the other side gets to present their evidence, and you are forced to collect evidence that's already in hand. You're supposed to go to court with your case already pretty much ready to go. Whereas here, as you know, the U.S. style discovery is you go to court with your allegations, you get to investigate the other side's files, there's you know interrogatories, depositions, and so forth. So there's a clash there when you have cross-border you know, cross litigation, where our legal traditions conflict directly with the legal traditions of these other countries. But ours are better. <laughs> I, I cannot, I cannot weigh in on that one since I litigate across borders. I am not, I'm not touching that one. Uh, but, but so what you get is, is that, you know, we have our legal traditions, they have their legal traditions and Congress was hoping to inspire these other countries, you know, to have a similar U S style discovery. And the other countries said, thank you very much for the discovery. We're not doing that. Um, but you also asked about, you know, how we can avoid people using 1782 to kind of get to the trade secrets, mm -hmm. to use it for anti-competitive purposes. Right. And the, the safe, the, you know, the safety rails there, the guard rails, if you will, are, you know, once you get 1782 discovery, you are subject to the normal discovery process in the United States. So you can say something is for trade secrets, something's unduly burdensome. You can withhold evidence under the standard rules of civil procedure and therefore get those kind of protections. 
Okay. Um, so that those are the the guardrails that you can try to prevent somebody from using this as a fishing expedition, but it's not yeah. always successful. How can litigators use Section uh, 1782 in to their advantage in foreign proceedings? The process uh, that you would go to to get discovery through Section 8, 1782 is pretty uniform. Uh, what you do is you have to file an application in the district of where that person or entity is found. Uh, so where the headquarters are or, you know, principal place of business, you would go and find the entity there. And once you file an application, the court looks at sta both statutory and prudential factors. The statutory factors are the target must reside in the district. Um, it has The evidence has to be for use in a foreign proceeding. And the applicant must be an interested person. And we kind of covered all those three mm -hmm. things. And well-counseled applicants rarely have trouble meeting the statutory factors. But where the rubber hits the road is on prudential factors that the U.S. Supreme Court invented in 2004 um, in a case called Intel. What the courts consider is whether the foreign tribunal has the power to order the same discovery. And if it does, then the court is less likely to grant the 1782 application because they're worried that the foreign court, if the foreign court could grant that discovery and didn't, the U.S. court doesn't want to be in conflict with that foreign court. So that's kind of where that, that factor comes from. They also consider whether the foreign tribunal will be receptive to that kind of discovery. So one of the big battles that you see in these 1782 disputes is whether discovery in the United States will be accepted in the foreign court. And often, you know, the foreign courts are happy to take whatever discovery the, the litigants provide and as long as it's not against, you know, principles of the GDPR or other principles of the country. So it's not really a huge factor, but it sometimes can be a factor that, that plays into it. And then they also, courts will consider whether you're trying to do an end run against fact gathering restrictions in the, in the target country. Um, and so those are things that the courts will consider as prudential factors. And then if the application is granted, You've got the statutory factors, the prudential factors. Then, you, as I mentioned before, you go into like the U.S. style discovery and you get all the protections, the rules of civil procedure. For example, you can argue it's unduly burdensome. You can say that there's privilege issues and all the juicy discovery fights that we've come to expect in U.S. litigation. So that's one key tool, obviously. What, what other tools, laws or tactics can litigators use when, when dealing with complex cross-border litigation. Right. So we've talked about discovery when you're in a foreign court. Another tool that is that you can use is when you're in a U.S. court and looking for discovery abroad. And everyone's heard of the Hague Evidence Convention. It probably makes them a little weak in the knees. I know whenever I see that come up, I am not thrilled to be going through the process. But uh, before we talk about the elephant in the room. There's one statute that we've stumbled on recently um, that's been greatly helpful. It's called the Walsh Act, which is actually uh, section 1783. It's the next section from 1782. Not many people know about it. The court we used it in had actually never handled a Walsh Act application before when we used it. Um, we were trying to get a discovery from a witness in Switzerland. And Switzerland is famously difficult to get discovery in. Uh, Swiss banks, all of that stuff. There's even an apocryphal story of a lawyer landing to take a deposition in Switzerland and getting arrested. So Switzerland is, I don't know if that's true. I've heard, that's what I heard. I can't attest to that. Arrested. It's just a podcast. It's just a <laughs> podcast, right. But uh, 
So, so you hear all these horror stories in Switzerland, and we realized that he was a U.S. citizen, and so we went searching for an answer. How can we get this guy to testify in our case? And it turns out there's this thing called the Walsh Act, and it's a statute that was created 100 years ago for history buffs out there during the Teapot Dome scandal. Perfect. When uh, you know top U.S. officials uh, had leased, secretly leased federal oil fields in the 1920s. And they got caught and they ran and tried to flee the country. And so Congress didn't want to have that. So they recognized that a country can call its own citizens back to it um, as part of their rights as citizens kind of grounded in historic international law. And so they passed the Walsh Act, which gives, it's a broad, flexible act that gives courts the power to recall U.S. citizens back to the United States to do depositions to provide documents and, you know, basically not be able to hide behind Swiss secrecy laws um, and get, get them to come back. So what was the, what was the, the Hague weak in the knees evidence thing? What was that? Oh yeah. So the Hague convention is uh, is (laughs) the elephant in the room. Now that's all I want to talk about. Right. Right. Of course. Of course. Mm -hmm. So the Hague convention is, uh, I mean, it conjures nightmares of endless bureaucracy and fruitless discovery uh, misadventures in foreign countries. That's only partly true. So it's a, it's a 70, 1972 treaty that allows U.S. litigants to gather discovery from non-parties in certain foreign countries. It's got a, a very bad reputation because it often takes several months, often over a year to get the discovery. And what it is, is you can apply to a U.S. court, a U.S. district court under this treaty to get a letter of request. And you're basically, the U.S. court is requesting a foreign court's help in gathering this discovery. Now, it's not every country, and there's a really big caveat that people need to watch out for. It's called Article 23. And it sounds a little bit arcane, but Article 23 allows people that, countries that have signed the Hague Convention to opt out of allowing pretrial discovery. And 26 countries have opted out so far, and 17 have restricted availability. So 26 have completely opted out and don't let you use it at all, and 17 have greatly restricted it. If the country allows it, so check for that first. But if the country allows it, you apply to a U.S. district court, and you have to go through several factors that the courts will consider in order for you to uh, get the application granted. You can tell me what those are? I suppose. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you you should look at these factors and it's in the case law, but um, basically the courts will consider, you know, how important the documents are. If it's a, if it's a tangential issue, the court doesn't want to bother a foreign country to get, you know, discovery on a tangential issue. But if you can prove to the court, that's kind of goes to the core of your case, they'll, they'll, that'll weigh in favor of granting the application. The second thing they'll consider is the specificity of the request. So you can't just go all documents about Airbus. You can't ask something like that because the court knows that when it kicks that application over to the foreign country, the foreign country is never going to grant that. They're going to see this as a U.S. court reaching in, trying to impose U.S. style discovery, and that's just never going to fly. So the courts will look at the specificity of the request. They'll look at whether the information originated in the United States and then just got sent abroad or whether it originated in in the foreign jurisdiction. If it started in the United States, more likely to grant it. If it started in the foreign jurisdiction, less likely. They're going to look at whether you have another way of getting that information. If there's a U.S. witness that's available, they'd rather go to the U.S. witness or the third party in the United States rather than having you go to the foreign country. And then there's this underlying, very generic 
category that sometimes gets brought up. And the court will consider whether compliance with the request would undermine the interest of the United States or the foreign country. And so this is kind of that nebulous catch-all you know, policy argument that people will argue. You'll hear about people arguing that, you know, in France, we don't allow this kind of discovery. People argue it's important to, you know, get discovery in the United States to support, you know, an open and fair litigation. And that's where you'll see a lot of those arguments. Want to talk about some common traps, right? Yeah. Um, so what do you, what do you see traps pr- practitioners facing when they're, when they're involved in cross-border discovery? Well, I, I think one of the first traps is you'll see hostile foreign jurisdictions. You know, if you're doing a Hague Convention application or a Walsh Act application, you actually have to get the court to issue the Walsh Act subpoena or the Hague Convention letter of request. And then you have to go to the central authority of the foreign country and get them to agree to enforce the U.S. court's order. And so that's not the easiest process. You would think that they would just give comedy and, you know, you know, respect the foreign, the U.S. court's request, but sometimes the central authority can deny, approve, or even do kind of a blue pencil and edit the request. So they can say, you know, I know what the U.S. court is saying here, but U.S. courts are used to really broad discovery. We need to make this a lot more narrow. And you can get tied up in that for a very long time. Um, We've had one application in England, you know, a former case that's now thankfully over that got stuck in the central authority going back and forth with local council over the blue penciling of the order for months and months and months. And it just dragged out to the point where it was almost not worth pursuing that discovery anymore. Hostile foreign jurisdictions are one of the biggest obstacles that a trap that you'll find. And, you know, getting good local counsel there is is invaluable. Is there a list of those? Yeah. Uh, I would recommend Robinson and Cole as, <laughs> as as one, and we will direct you to uh, a great it's Robinson. Counsel. It's Robinson plus Cole. Let's, that's let's, right. That's right. No, no spaces. <laughs> that's right. Hostile countries are they the ones I would imagine they would be, or are they? I mean, I I, I don't know what you're imagining, but usually, uh, I mean, they're they're definitely Russia. <laughs> Russia is very hostile. That's that, I'm just guessing. Uh, I was like, I was going uh, out on a limb there. Some that are hostile are actually in the Central European countries with, you know, a strong history of banking. Uh, those are like Switzerland is one of the more, quote unquote, hostile jurisdictions to discovery, even though it's a v- wonderful place to visit. Just don't yeah, go there to, to take a deposition. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Like I said, as if it wasn't litigation wasn't complicated enough. And then. I mean, we have all of our different jurisdictions under one umbrella, you know, a united, you might call it the United States. And then, um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> and right. then you throw, throw into that all the other, the other rules and attitudes and norms. Yeah. It's, um, did you want to do something else for a living? No, I'm just, it just sounds, it just sounds like it's complicated. So, um, uh, occasionally I yeah. thought about dance, but you know, I think this is. <laughs> That day is probably gone. <laughs> Once I turn 40, it's, uh, I'm not li- as limber as I used to be. <laughs> you could be in the best dancers under 50 uh, right. list or right. something like that. Right. I'm, sure exactly. that I'm sure that exists. Right. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll start that with Robinson plus Cole. So I guess, you know, so we talked about some of the traps. These are disputes within disputes. Uh, I'm sure somebody else said that before me, but if these uh, these disputes within disputes that you've experienced or studied, uh, any key lessons our listeners could take away? 
Yeah, I, I think that one of the lessons is that these discovery disputes can often become the tail wagging the dog as far as expense, time expended. And that's on both sides of the aisle, both the person applying for it and the person that's the target of this discovery. We've seen disputes in Germany where the legal bills for the U.S. side of the discovery have dwarfed the actual core foreign dispute. And so I think that, you know, when you're going in to consider whether you want to do foreign discovery, you need to consider how much of a resource expenditure you're going to see come out of this, because it does actually involve not only the initial application, but as I said, those juicy U.S. style discovery disputes all the way down the road. The other thing that you kind of see happening is the because discovery is and evidence is different and used differently in the um, European style of litigation, you're going to see an ongoing discovery dispute in the United States. So, for example, in Germany, you can introduce multiple points, new evidence at multiple points during the trial level litigation. You can introduce it at the outset, then you get a response where you can introduce new evidence. And you'll see people coming back and coming back and coming back for more and more discovery under 1782, either under the initial application or under new applications. During trial? During the trial. And then you can even do it during, you can introduce new evidence during the appeals at the, both the intermediate appellate level and the Supreme Court level if they get up there. So you get these discovery disputes that last for years and years and years that you wouldn't expect. In the United States, you know, it's it's a lot of discovery, but it's a it's a narrow window. And once that window's closed, you're done. Whereas in Europe, it's kind of this evolving model of discovery where you can continue to introduce things. And so we've seen them drag on and drag on and become, you know, literally the tail wagging the dog. Not literally, I guess that's figuratively. That would but. be, yeah, literally would be an actual dog, I believe. Right, an actual dog. Figuratively, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's important to make, words count. Yeah, yeah. Words matter. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's use, and let's use the right ones. Can you direct our, our listeners to any, any sets of guidelines? Um, you know, who's issuing guidance? Are they legislative guides or conventions? What can you tell so, us? Yeah. So one thing that people often overlook, you know, they'll go right to Westlaw for those litigators out there that know what Westlaw is. Um, they'll go right to the, the, you know, the case law, the treatises. One thing that people always overlook is the U.S. State Department. So we had a case where, especially in like areas of evolving litigation, like for example, video depositions, right? That, that creates a very weird situation because you're not flying to the foreign country. You're deposing somebody over camera. Do the same rules apply? Um, so we had a case where we had a witness in Sweden um, and we knew that it was a friendly witness because they had testified against our opposing side in the European antitrust proceedings. And we wanted to get their testimony. And they agreed to give the testimony, but they didn't want to fly to the United States because it was the middle of COVID. So we had to figure out, what do we do? How do we depose this person in Sweden? Um, whether Do we have to go there? What if we do it by video? And all the treatises and all the case law, you know, God bless them, hadn't caught up with Zoom depositions yet. We did some research, and the answer was that we had to get permission from the Swedish government. And I thought that sounded a little bit of extreme. You know, it's a video. Let's let's just look at the U.S. State Department website. So I looked at the embassy website, and it said we didn't need to do that. We we could just do a video deposition with no, you know, without getting permission of the, the Swedish state government. So now, because I'm a lawyer, I decide to call the embassy rather than just read some random statement on a website. Right. They confirmed it. 
we had them email us some official documents saying that this was okay. And then we ended up being able to do a video deposition. So one thing that I would recommend, especially if you're going in a new direction for discovery, like video depositions, you know, collecting evidence through other means than a traditional sit down deposition in the same room or document requests is consult the State Department websites for that specific country. And of course, I have to give the caveat, this was three years ago. I don't know what the rule is in Sweden, so it could be totally different now. So I'm sure my uh, you know, risk management people will be happy that I gave that caveat. Okay. All right. So when they're doing a deposition like this, um, I know they're big into lawn care in Sweden. What if somebody's got a leaf blower going in the background during, never mind. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's, that's, just... that's preferred. It's actually a requirement of Swiss, a Swedish law is that you must have yard work happening in the background of any Zoom deposition. <laughs> Their yards are immaculate. I know yeah. nothing. I know nothing about that. They, for all I know, they don't even have, they just grow coconuts or something. I don't know. Gosh, I really, I need to get out. I need to get out more. Um, <laughs> I know about Sweden. I don't know if this is the the psychological part of this, but to sum up what we discussed in a way, how would you prepare a potential litigant for cross-border matters? Like what what would they expect? What should their mindset be? Well, I I would first pour them a big glass of scotch. (laughs) uh, My first order of business. But what their mindset would be is that um, you should think about how and whether you should try to leverage international discovery tools in a litigation. And so if you're in the foreign jurisdiction, you know, look about whether you should or need new evidence to support your claim and whether your client would also be exposed to 1782. Because as I said, you know, whether you want to go through the entire U.S. discovery process or not, it's a very powerful tool, but it can also draw you in and cost a lot of money. So you should evaluate whether there's an easier way to get the evidence you need. If not, go for it. Go for 1782. It's a very powerful tool and it can be very useful. And if you're in the United States, start early as you possibly can because the Hague Convention and the Walsh Act take time. The Walsh Act is a little bit quicker because the the U.S. court issues a subpoena. And then the, the complicating factor is you have to serve that subpoena on the person in the foreign country. And so to do that, you have to get permission from the, the foreign country, which isn't as hard as getting evidence to the Hague Convention but can be a difficult process. And the Hague Convention can take a really long time. So if you think you need evidence to the Hague Convention, get local counsel as soon as possible and start that process at the outset. Identify exactly who the witnesses are that you think you need. Try to make it as specific as possible. Try to hone that and get any evidence you can in the United States. But at the same time, start that Hague Convention process because it will take months and months. I think I saw somewhere the average is like 18 to 24 months. Okay. So start that as soon as you possibly can. I'm just curious. You obviously, you're knee deep in this stuff and and scotch too, apparently. But no, you're, you're really <laughs> like, you're a specialist. Do, do law firms ever find um, that they, they've got a case and it's getting complicated and they have to go to a foreign jurisdiction? To, I mean, do you get firms ever coming to you like that? Yeah, yeah, we do get firms that come to us looking for a little bit more expertise on the international aspect of things, Um, and we're we're happy to team up with them and give them a little bit of advice on how how to navigate these these kind of disputes because it it does actually become very sticky, right? And when you get down into the weeds of it, um, both for the 1782 proceedings and for um, the foreign 
you know, dealing with a foreign tribunal, you you have to really know what you're doing in order to do these things uh, and do them effectively because it it can just take a very long time if you don't know what you know buttons to push and levers to pull. So, do you see anything coming up in the future that might make cross border discovery and litigation easier to navigate? Yeah, well, I, I think in some ways, I think the Supreme Court could continue to winnow down 1782. They've already said it doesn't apply to private arbitrations. So when I said earlier that it applies to like lots of different types of cases, like you can do litigation, you can do contemplated litigation, you can do it for you know administrative proceedings, but you can't do it for private arbitrations. Um, and the Supreme Court has really shown you know, a tendency to look down on statutes that, you know, extend beyond the borders of the United States or vice versa or help, you know, like uh, proceedings outside of the United States. So I could imagine them, you know, continuing to winnow down 1782 to try to make it as uh, limited as possible and also limit, um, you know, the Walsh Act and the Hagen Convention, you know, issue and additional interpretations that kind of constrict that. So I think the Supreme Court could have a, a big role in that, especially with their view of international law and extraterritoriality. And then I think the other thing that we could see in the future is, you know, evolving technology affecting how discovery is taken. And I, I mentioned the Zoom depositions in Sweden. I think we're going to see countries grappling with that more and more and trying to decide how these new technologies affect their, you know, territoriality and their sovereignty whether reaching in for a Zoom deposition is an infringement on their sovereignty or is a consensual deposition over a video, not really that big a deal. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see a lot of evolution in that respect, and it's something to keep an eye on. Just in general, uh, have you come across any rules that are just so far away from how we do things in the United States that, uh, that you might point out? I'm just, you may not. Maybe, maybe everything is uh, yeah. somewhat similar. No, no, things are very different. Um, I mean, I, I keep hitting on Switzerland and they're going to ban me from their country. <laughs> but uh, Switzerland, uh, for example, if you do get them to agree to do a deposition, the court asks the questions. You can submit questions mm. to the court and the court or an officer of the court will ask the questions and you have no control over what they will actually ask or whether they'll ask them or whether there'll be any follow-up questions. Oh. So you could get a witness, you know, win this Hague Convention thing, get a deposition of a witness in Switzerland and have the court ask three questions. You know, what's your name? What do you know about this case? And do you have anything else to add? And then call it a day. So there's a wide variety of different uh, approaches. And uh, I'm sorry, Switzerland. I love you. I would love to. (laughs) So please don't listen to this podcast. The Swiss uh, (laughs) listeners I apologize. It's a lovely country. I'll start off in my intro. I'll say some very nice things about Switzerland. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. And how many Americans mix up Switzerland and Sweden. Um, right. I don't know. It, it's just, it's obscene that we do that. But um, yeah. okay. I, I was not, to be fair. I was I was talking about both different countries. I know you were. Yeah. I know you were. But in my mind, it's terrible. I I'm, I'm, yeah. should be embarrassed, but I, I have no shame left. So the uh, the thing about this is is that so some of them are just very different, which I which I appreciate. But I mean, as an attorney in Switzerland, if you're, it must be like you must be biting your lip, you know, not being able to ask your own questions. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a difficult process. If you talk to local counsel in Switzerland, they will suggest that you know documents are a lot easier to get 
through the Hague Convention. And, you know, as far as witnesses, uh, if you can try to get a Walsh Act uh, subpoena, that's fantastic. But, you know, don't get your hopes up. It's possible, okay. but don't get your hopes up. <laughs> All right. Well, Ben Daniels, thank you very much for talking with me about this. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Tom. It's a pleasure. That concludes this episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast. If you have any questions about anything you heard on the podcast or would like to participate, please write to me at editor at litigationconferences.com. The Emerging Litigation Podcast is a co-production of HB Litigation and Critical Legal Content, my companies, and Fastcase, and our friends at Law Street Media, David Nair, Editor-in-Chief. This is also the audio companion to the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation, published by Fastcase, Full Court Press, Tom Hagee, Editor-in-Chief, Morgan Wright, Publisher. I'm your host, Tom Hagee. That's why I'm talking, and I don't know if it needs to be said, but this is not legal advice. Unless telling you it's not legal advice is legal advice, although I'd argue it's just plain common sense. Thanks for listening. Give us a rating, share with friends. See you on the next episode.